Well, if you got a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Have you ever wondered what generosity looks like? I'm talking about radical generosity. Generosity that really doesn't make sense. Generosity that is beyond our level of understanding. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we wrap up this series on generosity. Now, if you're our guest this morning, you're not a part of the Northside family, it's my prayer that as we look at God's Word and we unwrap this, this example of generosity, that God will touch your heart and you will move to live more of a life of generosity. But if you're a part of the Northside family, then I am going to call you this morning to make a commitment to generosity. To live a life of generosity as we as a family of faith seek to carry out the ministry and the mission that our Lord has given us to carry out. Now thus far as we've talked about generosity, we've looked at two things. First of all, we looked at the key to generosity. And the key to generosity is understanding that everything that is in my hands is a gift from a loving and generous Heavenly Father. And He has given me this gift of generosity so that I can use it for His glory. Now, as I use it for His glory, He wants me to have my needs met and He wants me to enjoy life. But then He also wants me to use what He gives me to help others. And here's what I'm convinced of. When we understand that whatever we have is a gift from God, then it will begin to compel us to live a life of generosity. Last week, we began to look at the enemy of generosity, and the enemy of generosity is greed. Materialism, the desire for things, the, the desire to acquire. And the fact of the matter is, each and every one of us struggle with that desire. Whoever we are, however godly we may think we are, we all struggle with the desire for things, don't we? For some of us, it's the desire for a, a new gun to hunt with. For others of us, it's a desire for a, a new boat to fish with. For some of you ladies, it's a desire for a new pair of shoes that you just saw on the feet of some other lady. But we all have this desire to acquire. And if we're going to ever overcome that desire, we've got to learn the secret to contentment. We've got to learn how to be content with what we've guided. And that's the key and the enemy of generosity. But what I want us to look at this morning is a model of generosity. And when I'm talking about generosity, I'm talking about radical generosity. And this model, this example, occurs at the end of Jesus' public ministry. As a matter of fact, it's one of the very last things that Jesus addressed. And, and it really, it occurred probably a day or two before Jesus was betrayed, he was tortured, and then nailed to a cross. And so if this is one of the very last things that Jesus addressed with his disciples, then obviously it is important for us to understand. Wouldn't you think so? I mean, if Jesus is who he said he was, and, and one of the very last things he dealt with was this issue of generosity, you and I need to listen, we need to 
have our ears perked up so that we can understand what he's saying when it comes to this issue. Now, there's some of you that, that don't think that Jesus spoke about giving and about stewardship, but, but you need to understand that this is one of the, the, the topics that Jesus spoke most often about. Jesus said that where our treasures are, there our heart will be. He, he told us to, to not give when we give, to not give like the Pharisees that give for show and the applause of man. Jesus told us that, that we should tithe, but then he said that you should not only tithe, but as you tithe, don't neglect these more important things like mercy and justice and grace. So Jesus dealt with this issue of giving and, and generosity and stewardship. And in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 41, he gives us an example of what I believe is radical generosity. Listen to what it says. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and, and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, we're never told this woman's name. We really don't know anything about her except that she was poor and she was a widow. And yet she will be remembered for all eternity as one of the most generous people who ever lived. And so I want us to unpack this story this morning and, and see what God can teach us as you and I seek to become generous people. Now here's the first thing you need to understand. Jesus is watching when we give. You need to understand that. When you give, when I give... Jesus is watching us. Now, some people say that giving is a private matter. And they quote verses like Matthew 6, verses 3 and 4 that says, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But when you give, give in private so that your Father in heaven will reward you. And people use that verse and they say, See, no one else should know what you're giving. No one else should see what you're giving. But what they fail to understand when they use that verse is the context of that verse. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to let someone else know what you're giving. Jesus is saying, what is the motivation for your giving? Are you giving for the applause of man or are you giving for the applause of God? If I am giving so that people will look at me and go, wow, look at what he gives then my heart is wrong with God. But if I'm giving because I am motivated by my love from God, then my heart is right with God. And so this passage says that Jesus went into the place, the courtyard, where the temple treasury was located, and he sat on a seat opposite of the treasury. In other words, Jesus found a seat where he could watch what people were giving. Don't miss that. Jesus got him a seat so that he could look 
at what people were giving. Now that word watch means to stare intently. It means a penetrating stare with a discerning eye. You see, Jesus was observing. Jesus was um, um, studying. Jesus was, was watching what these people were giving. It's not that he just gave a casual glance. He was staring at them. Now, how would you feel if every week when the offering was given, someone just watched you as the offering plate passed, and they looked at you, they looked at your eyes, they looked at what you put in, and then they looked back at you face to face, and they gave you this kind of look like, how would that make you feel if people did that? How would it make you feel if when you're writing your check for what you give, someone is looking over your shoulder watching to see what you write, and that person knows how much you make? And then when they see the check that you write and they know how much you make, they give you that look again. What, what's up with that? Most of us who follow golf have heard the name Payne Stewart. Back a little over 10 years ago, Payne Stewart died in a plane crash. Shortly before Payne Stewart died, he gave his life to Jesus. And one of the people that was on that plane with Payne Stewart was, was a business manager for Payne Stewart, a, a man that dearly loved the Lord. And, and about a year before he died, there was a true story about this man who was meeting with his accountability group. A group of other men who loved the Lord and they would study the Word together and they would hold each other accountable for how they were living. And as they were opening the Word of God and they were praying together, this man took out his checkbook, put it on the table, and he said, guys, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at how I am spending my money. I want you to look at how much money I have versus how much money I give and tell me, Am I honoring God with my resources? When I heard that story, I went, wow. That's a man who realizes that there is a God in heaven who sees what we give. And he is looking at us. Now, there are some people that say God isn't concerned with what you give. And that could be further from the truth. God is concerned with what you give and God is concerned with why you give. God is concerned with both of those. If he weren't, then why was Jesus sitting there watching people as they gave? Now notice, the temple was the place that they gave. Now the temple was the focal point of worship in Jerusalem. Now they could worship anywhere, and, and they could meet God anywhere, and they could have an encounter with God anywhere, but, but they came together for corporate worship at the temple. People would gather and they would give their gifts, they would sacrifice, they would pray, and, and they would worship God. And in the Old Testament, we are told that the people were commanded to bring their tithes to the storehouse, a place where the tithes were kept so that the priests could use these tithes to minister in the name of Jesus and carry out the mission that God had given the church. And so the people would bring all their tithes to the storehouse. But when the church was born, that began to change. You see, the early church continued to worship in the temple with all the other Jews. But as the 
church began to be persecuted and, and as believers began to be hunted down, they could no longer worship in the temple. And so they would begin to worship in homes. And they had home churches, house churches. And as they outgrew these house churches, they would find other places where the crowds could meet and they could gather together and worship God in the name of Jesus. That's why when we read the New Testament, we read uh, letters written to the church at Corinth, to the church at Galatia, to the church at Philippi, to the church at Thessalonica, because there were individual churches meeting there. You see, the church spiritually was born on the day of Pentecost, but the church practically was birthed as far as a place, a location, when they could no longer worship in the temple and they began to worship together. It was at this time that the people quit giving their offerings, their tithes, to the temple and they started giving their offerings to that local church that they were a part of. And just as the temple and the giving in the temple was so that the ministry of God and the mission of God could be carried out, when they gave their tithes and their offerings to their local church, it was so that the ministry in Jesus' name and then the mission that Jesus gave them could be carried out. You see, the New Testament equivalent to the temple is the church. And the church should be the first place that we give. Now, to understand, there are many good causes. There are many good ministries. There are many good organizations that we should give to. And we ought to give to if we have the resources. But hear my heart. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And the place where our primary resources as gifts and offerings should be given is the church. Now, let's move on with this story. Because as we look at it, we discover that everyone gave from the richest to the poorest. Now, no Jewish worshiper would have ever considered coming to the house of God empty-handed. They would always give. They realized the very essence of worship was giving. Now, hear me. I have nothing against giving online. If you're giving online, that's great. Give online. Give more online. Give a ton online. If you have your, your bank account automatically drafted to give, that's okay. My wife and I don't do that, though. And the reason we don't do that is because in my mind, and call me old-fashioned, but in my mind, there's just something to putting that gift in the offering plate as it goes around. To me, that is a part of worship. That is an act of worship. It's showing to God, God, I am trusting you with my resources and I am giving back to you because I recognize that everything comes from you. So everyone gave. Jesus saw the rich give. It even says they gave large amounts. Over the last several years, you may have heard stories about the super rich giving exorbitant amounts of money to charity. For instance, Warren Buffett has pledged 85% of his estate to the Gates Foundation. 85%. You know how much Warren Buffett is worth? $50 billion. $50 billion. And we go, wow, that's generous, isn't it? Giving 85% of his $50 billion estate to charity. But there are a couple of things you need to understand. He's giving that money after he dies. So it's all available for his use 
until he dies. And he's leaving 15% to his family. And you say, 15% isn't that much. Well, 15% of 50 billion is $7 billion. I just got to tell you, I think me and my entire extended family could live okay on $7 billion. We could do all right. And, And that's not to diss Warren Buffett for making that pledge. It's just to say, giving 85% of $50 billion when you still got $7 billion to do with what you want, that's really not a sacrifice, is it? And so Jesus said there were these rich people, and they were given large amounts. But then he says this poor widow came, and she gave two mites. Two mites. Now, understand, a day's wage was a denarius. And it took 128 mites to equal a denarius. And so when this woman gave two mites, she was giving absolutely nothing as far as the amount of the money is concerned. The Bible says she was poor. That word literally means a pauper. She wasn't just a peasant. She was a beggar. She was a widow. What that means is that she was all alone. She didn't have an extended family to fall back on. She had no one else to help her get by. Now, many of us would say that that Jesus should have stopped her from giving and say, hold on. Little sister, you don't need to give that two mites. You need that for yourself. But Jesus didn't stop her. And she wouldn't be stopped. And the reason is because she recognized that giving is an act of worship. And even though she didn't have much, she wanted to give what she had as an act of worship. You see, you need to understand that giving is not, hear me, this is important, giving is not a duty Giving is an opportunity. Giving is not just a responsibility that I have. Giving is a privilege that I have. It's a wonderful privilege that I have to enter into the presence of God. You see, giving is an act of worship, not the result of my wealth. And this woman wouldn't think of coming to worship and not giving to the Lord. Now, there's an interesting statistic, true statistic. The more... A person makes, the less percentage of their income they give to charity. Did you hear me? The more a person makes, the less that they give percentage-wise to charity. And so what that means is this. The more disposable income I have, the more I keep for myself. You would think, wouldn't you? You would think, as I get more, It's going to give me the opportunity to be more generous, but that's not the way people are. As a matter of fact, there's a recent statistic from the U.S. Department of um, Labor Statistics that said this. The poorest fifth of American households contributed an average of 4.3% of their income to charity. The poorest fifth percent of households contributed 4.3% of their income to charity. The richest fifth gave less than half that rate. They gave 2.1%. And so the poorer a person is, the statistics reveal the greater percentage they give to charitable organizations. So, So here's this woman. She has nothing, and yet she gives everything. And so as Jesus is watching this, and and he sees the rich 
give large amounts of money, and he, he sees this poor widow give two mites. He uses this as an opportunity to teach. And this is what he teaches. God measures generosity different than we do. Let me say that again. God measures generosity different than we do. That word more in verse 30, 43 literally means by far the largest. In other words, what Jesus is saying is he's talking to his disciples. He said, I want you to know that this woman is given more than all the others. She's given by far the largest gift given today. The disciples were sitting there and they were going, what? We've seen the rich give these huge amounts. And we saw what she gave. She gave next to nothing. How did she give more than they gave? You see, Jesus was teaching that God views generosity different than we do. Because the Bible says that the wealthy gave out of their affluence. They gave out of their excess. They gave out of their surplus. While this poor widow gave everything she had to live on. Did you get that? In, in other words, the rich people gave big gifts, but it didn't cost them a thing. This poor widow, she gave what was considered in earthly terms a small amount, but it was everything she had. Everything she had to live on. The rich gave out of their abundance, their overflow. She gave out of her poverty. Listen. It's not what you give that determines generosity. It's what you have after you give that determines generosity. You see, the size of a gift isn't determined by how much we give. The size of the gift is determined by how much we have after we live, give. So what does it mean to be generous, to be radically generous? Let me give you three things. First of all, radical generosity is sacrificial. It's first of all sacrificial. When we give out of our excess, that is never sacrificed. The rich gave large amounts, but it really cost them nothing. If we're honest, the truth is most of us give out of our surplus. And God wants us to sacrifice. And what I mean by that is you may say, oh, you don't know. I sacrificed. I wasn't able to, to get that boat I wanted. <laughs> well, that's not really a sacrifice. Sacrifice is when I give up things I need, not when I give up things I want. You see, too many of us are minimalist when it comes to giving. We want to know what does the law require. How much do I need to give to fulfill my obligation so that I am obedient to God? I find it humorous when people come up to me and they say, Okay, Pastor, do I need to tithe on my net or on my gross? Now, when a person asks that question, do I tithe, do I determine my 10% on the net or the gross, what are they saying? They're saying, I want to know what is the minimum that I can do and be obedient. If it's my net, then that's what I'm going to give. If it's my, my gross, that's what I'm going to give. I want to do the minimum that I need to do to be obedient to God. And can I tell you, when we live a minimalist lifestyle, when it comes to giving, that shows that we've got a problem in our heart. 
You see, I am convinced that God's love compels us to give far more than God's law could ever command us to give. Let me say that again. God's love compels us to give far more than God's law could ever command us to give. I want to read you something from from an article by Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn has written a, a large volume on heaven that if you really want to read a biblical view of heaven, it's the best book out there. But he's also written a good bit on stewardship. And in one of his articles, he said this, and I want to read to you what he says. He said, to me, giving less than a tithe is simply not an option. Someday I'm going to stand before God and give an account of my life. On that day, I do not want to have to explain why, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit and having lived in the most affluent nation in human history, I failed to give at the very minimum level of those who did not have the indwelling Spirit and owned far less than I have. Maybe you believe the tithe was an Old Testament standard and we're no longer under the law but under grace. So tithing isn't a requirement for us. Okay, let's say you're right. Now, do you really think God doesn't have a will for New Testament Christians when it comes to giving? Or that he has lowered the bar of what he expects of us? Since studies show the average Christian gives just over 2% of their income to the Lord, does that mean that grace is only a fifth as effective as the law? Or is something fundamentally wrong with our approach to giving? Are we failing to learn what real grace giving means because we children of grace are failing to start at the minimum level? God started his children under the old covenant. The concepts behind the first fruits, ownership and worthiness of God, and the servanthood and indebtedness of man are as true today as they were in the Old Testament. And surely the gratitude of God's people should be far greater on this side of Calvary than the other. I view the tithe of 10% as I view a child's first steps. His first steps are not his last. Neither are they his best. But they are a fine beginning. So is the tithe. Tithing is for many the first toddler step of stewardship. It is the training wheels on the bicycle of true giving. It may not be a home run, but it gets you on base, which is a lot further than the majority of church members ever get. Two reasons commonly given for not tithing are, I can see it's right to tithe, but I must pay off my debts first. Why am I in debt in the first place? Is God responsible for my unwise or self-serving decisions that may have put me there? And even if I have come into debt legitimately, isn't my first step, my first debt to God? If we obey God and make good our obligations to Him, He will help us as we seek to pay off our debt to others. Others say, I can't afford to tithe. Of course I can. What if my salary was reduced by 10%? Wouldn't I continue to live? And if tithing is God's will and he promises to provide for those who trust and obey him, won't he allow me to get by on 90% rather than 100%? In fact, am I not a lot safer living on less inside the will of God than living on more outside of it? Never put off obedience. The moment of conviction and enlightenment is the moment to act. To procrastinate is to disobey. Trust him enough to begin this life-changing, eternity-impacting adventure of giving. Scripture makes clear that in many cases, God blesses us financially when we generously give. When God prospers us in this way, it is not merely to give our, 
give us new toys or more beautiful homes, but to allow us to give still more. You will be, be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, the Bible says. God's extra provision is usually not intended to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Has your giving ever been sacrificial? Has it ever caused you to do without? Because that's the way this woman gave. And you see, we can talk about our giving and, and we can justify or we can feel very good about it. But, but this woman gave sacrificially. The second thing about radical generosity is this. It results in dependence on God. The scripture says that this woman gave all she had to live on. She didn't give out of her excess. She gave out of her need. You see, it wasn't that this woman wasn't going to be able to go out and eat a couple of times this week. When this woman gave, what it meant is she didn't have the money to buy a piece of bread to eat that day. Now, by our standard, we would say that that giving was foolish. But by God's standards, nothing could be wiser because as she stepped out, she moved into that arena of faith where she had to trust God. And here's what I've come to understand. Most of us who are believers say that we trust God to supply our needs. But most of us who are believers have a plan B. We have a fallback plan, don't we? If truth be known... Most of us trust more in our 401K, our IRA, or our savings account than we do the God of heaven and earth. Now, don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. If you were here last week, you heard me say that each and every one of us need to save. We need to have a, an emergency fund. We need to save for the future. We need to save. But you need to ask yourself, does my level of generosity show that I am truly trusting God to meet my needs? Or am I holding back because in the end, I really don't believe God is going to do what he said. Which is to supply all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus my Lord. And so radical generosity is first of all sacrificial. Radical generosity will result in us depending upon God. But here's what I know. We will never get to the point where we can live a life of radical generosity until we first of all give ourselves to the Lord completely. I'm convinced of that. Now, this woman did that. How do I know? Because she gave all she had. The Bible doesn't say specifically that she gave herself to the Lord first. But when she came to that place of giving and she gave all she had, it's obvious that she had given all she had to God. But there's a passage that does reveal this. It's in 2 Corinthians 8. When Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and he's bragging on the church at Macedonia. Listen to what it says. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. I testify 
They gave as much as they were able, and in the, then they gave beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they pleaded with us for the privilege of giving. And they didn't give as we expected because they first of all gave themselves completely to the Lord. What did they do first? They gave themselves to the Lord. Here's what I know. Until we give ourselves completely to the Lord, we'll never be able to trust the Lord. If I cannot trust the Lord with my salvation, I'm not going to trust Him with my finances. That's a fact. And so if I want to come to that point where I can live a life of radical generosity, the first step is to give myself completely to Him. The truth be told, there's got to be some of us in this room this morning who have never done that. We've never accepted the gracious gift of God, which is eternal life. We've never humbled ourselves before God, acknowledging our need. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And we will never be able to live the way God intends for us to live apart from accepting His gift of grace. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, accepted Him as your Savior, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. But there are others of us here who have done that. I mean, you can go back to a point in time where you accepted God's gift of salvation and, and your life was changed. And yet, if you're honest this morning, you would say, but I'm not completely surrendered. There are areas of my life, there are pockets that I've held back from God. It may be relationships. It, it may be finances. It may be something else, but, but there's areas of our life where we've said to God, God, I want you to have it all, but, but God, uh, not this part. So we've held back. And, and I'm here to tell you that when you give it all to Him, and you begin to trust Him with everything, God begins, hear me, God begins to intervene in your life in a way that you've never known before. And so I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed, if you're here and, and you've never accepted God's gift of eternal life, before we go any further, I want to give you that opportunity to do that right now. I want to encourage you to, to humble yourself and pray this prayer to God. Dear God, I come to you this morning acknowledging my need. I've lived life my way. I've set myself up as God, acting like I know better than you do. I've made my own choices. I've lived my own way. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. I really do believe you love me, Father. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sins so that I can have a relationship with you. And right now, I'm asking you to save me. Come into my life, take control. This moment on, I, I, I want to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. 
Now, with your head still bowed, your eyes still closed, if you're here, say, Rocky, I've prayed that prayer before, and I meant it, but there are areas of my life that are not surrendered. And you're ready to surrender all to Him, everything. Then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Father, I know you love me. I've experienced your grace. I know what it is to be forgiven. But I haven't fully surrendered my life to you. There are areas of my life that I haven't trusted you with. Forgive me. This morning, I'm turning it all over to you. I'm going to trust you with everything. My relationships, my finances, my health, my security, turning everything over to you. I'm an open book. I'm yours. Take control. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Amen.